Hello, this is Bob Groves, and welcome to the Provost podcast series, which we're calling Faculty in Research. This week, I am delighted to welcome our first guest for the podcast series, Dr. Deborah Tannen, who is university professor at Georgetown and professor of linguistics. In addition to her 17 academic books and over 100 scholarly articles, she's written eight books influential for general audiences. Probably the best known of these is You Just Don't Understand, colon, Women and Men in Conversation. That book was on the New York Times bestseller list for nearly four years, including eight months as number one, and has been translated into 31 languages. This is the book that brought gender differences in communication style to the forefront of public awareness. Deborah's a frequent guest and contributor to many national television and radio programs, and we're delighted to have her with us today. Pleasure to be here and talk to you. Tell us how you ended up at Georgetown. This actually was my first job out of grad school. It was actually perfect for me because Georgetown in the linguistics department has a sociolinguistics program, really the only linguistics department in the world that has as large a sociolinguistics program as they do. Uh, it was just at the beginning of a field that we call discourse analysis, and I'd been lucky enough to have come into the field just at that time, and my professors at linguistics were really pioneering that field. So although there were five sociolinguists, nobody was doing exactly that kind of work. Um, and so it was a perfect fit. So tell us how sociolinguistics defines itself in the context of the larger discipline of linguistics. So if you think of linguistics as the scientific study of language, sociolinguistics could be thought of as the relationship between language and social interaction, how people actually use language in their everyday lives. Um, but, you know, I didn't think of myself as a sociolinguist till I came here. I often think of a comment that one of my professors, Robin Lakoff, made. She said, I'm a linguist, this is what I do, so it's linguistics. Uh, it was unusual to be studying, as she did, a language of everyday conversation, and I was very much influenced by her, as well as by other professors that I had uh, at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. That's where I did my graduate work at UC Berkeley in California. I should note, too, I was 30 when I began my grad school in linguistics. My BA and MA were English literature. Uh, after getting a BA, I had worked a while, saved some money, gone off to Europe on a one-way ticket. It was the 60s. You could do that at the time. Figure you do anything you want now, and then you do something else that you want to do later. Um, so I had done that, and then I was teaching English in Greece. That's where I ended up in Europe. I was there for a couple of years. When I came back, I had this interest in teaching English. I did get my master's degree in English Lit, but I was teaching English as a second language at the same time uh, to earn some money while I was getting that degree. Um, I was a teacher of remedial writing and English as a second language, and I got bored. I was nearing 30, and that's when I decided I'll go back to school and chose linguistics. So when you describe what you do to someone outside of academia, and uh, they ask you questions like, what is your research about? How do you answer them? All my research has been about how people use language in their everyday lives. I would say from the perspective of linguistics, the question always is, how does language work to create meaning? and negotiate relationships. 
outside of academia, I'd probably focus just on that. How does your use of language affect your relationships? I've always thought, and this has a lot to do with why I ended up writing books for general audiences as well as for academics. Um, I could see that psychologists were extremely good at communicating to a broader audience, and linguists really hadn't been. So I could see that things people were attributing to psychology in many cases had to do just with use of language. So, um, and maybe this is another influence on my background that comes in here. Uh, I was raised in Brooklyn, New York. I got my PhD in California. I had lived in Greece. So three different, quite different cultures. And I could see that ways of speaking were different in all these different cultures. I'll say a couple words about my dissertation because that really was the seed of everything I've done since. I was interested in something that I would call conversational style. When we think we have something to say or something to do, we just take for granted we're going to talk. But every decision we make, what we're going to say, in what order, how loudly or softly we're going to speak, directness versus indirectness. Are we going to come right out and say it or say it in a way that isn't exactly what we mean, but we know people will understand what we're getting at. All these differences I could see because of those three places I had lived in were culturally relative. So when I decided to write a dissertation, I was going to just get a conversation, look at each individual's conversational style and how that style affected the interaction. I, I was recording every conversation I was part of for a while there. And the one I decided to use for my dissertation was a Thanksgiving dinner conversation. I was a guest. The host was my best friend, also from New York, although I'm from Brooklyn and he's from the Bronx, and that's kind of different. Um, his brother, a really close friend of his, he and his close friend are gay. His brother is not, I'm not and his former wife, who was British. So I had people representing these different cultures, although I hadn't planned it that way. And when I started to do my analysis, I realized I couldn't really determine the conversational styles of the friend who was from California and the former wife who was British, because my friend Carl, I myself, and his brother all New Yorkers and New Yorkers of East European Jewish background had a style of speaking that made it difficult for the others to get the floor. <laughs> and it was just a tiny little difference in timing. Our sense of how long a pause one should wait before we conclude the other one has nothing to say was just a little bit shorter than the speakers from California and a lot shorter than the speaker from England. I actually uh, timed pauses using a stopwatch. Now all this can be done mm -hmm. on the computer. Um, so this tiny little difference in sense of timing uh, and also a slight difference in our attitude toward what I would call overlap. Other people might call it interruption, but I'm extremely um, careful with my students to instill in them an appreciation that as soon as you say interruption, you're making an interpretation and we need to distinguish between description and interpretation. So the description is two voices are going at once. Whether it's an interruption is an interpretation. And frequently, the speakers of New York Jewish background spoke along as a way of showing enthusiasm. You don't expect the other one to stop. You're just showing what a good listener you are and how interested you are in what they're saying by kind of talking along. But when we did that with the 
Californians or the woman from England, they would stop them. Do you think people are conscious of these culturally situated behaviors? I'm careful about the use of the word conscious. It's not unconscious. If you ask them about it, they can focus on it. Uh, but they're, it's not at the top of their awareness. It's automatic, I would say. It's automatic, not unconscious, but automatic. But once you describe it and talk about it, then people are very aware of it. So the good friend who was there at Thanksgiving dinner became aware of that, and so we, could, we would all correct for it in subsequent conversations. Fascinating. So it's obvious in listening to you about your own research that it's a passion and it's a avocation as well as a vocation. So thinking about how you approach observation and phenomena of interest, what's the, the germ of the passion that keeps you going? I think it's always the question, how are people using language and how is that affecting their relationships? I think everybody's, and this would be, have been true of me starting out too, tend to look through language. We think of what we're trying to do. We think of people's intentions. We think of people's abilities. And language is just a tool we're using that we're not really thinking about. So what I can't get over is the role of language that is often overlooked. And that, that's always there. In recent years, I've, I've been teaching here at Georgetown uh, the discourse of social media. Since I started out wanting to know about the language of everyday conversation, everyday conversation now is taking place over social media. Um, and it's just so much fun to see how these same processes, same um, linguistic habits are playing out in this new medium. How the use of social media is changing our way of using language and in many ways just enhancing very similar uses. So I'll give you an example. I'm, since I started out with an interest in cross-cultural differences, I've always been interested in differences because of region, class, ethnicity, age. Well, the age factor becomes so important in use of social media. And I was hearing people my age, my peers, being critical of young people because of the use of social media. And then I was hearing from my students the logic behind what their uses of social media. And it reminded me so much of the pattern that I had been, I just started out with that ways of using language that were typical of the speakers of near Jewish background, although I didn't identify it that way in my dissertation, um, I developed the term high involvement style. You put the emphasis on showing you're involved. How these uses of language that made sense within the in-group could have a negative effect when used with people who didn't share that style. And the really tragic, and I don't think tragic is an overstatement, result that people have these negative evaluations of those whose styles are different. So you get the negative stereotype of a pushy New Yorker, uh, or you get the negative stereotype of uh, people from the South being stupid, or you, and this, by the way, is something across the world that the people, people who speak more slowly are stereotyped within that culture as stupid. People who speak more quickly are stereotyped in that culture as aggressive and pushy. Across languages. It's, yeah, uh, so a colleague of mine was looking at this in Scandinavia. Finns 
who are stereotyped as stupid by other Scandinavians. Within Finland, there's a region where people speak more slowly and they're negatively stereotyped in a similar way by other Finns. So that's kind of a universal tendency. But maybe the larger way to express that universal tendency is the um, eagerness with which people have negative evaluations of those who's, who uh, come from a group that they see as different. And they're just ready to say, those people have these negative personality characteristics. And sometimes it's just a matter of different uses of language. I'm interested in how you go about choosing the next research question you do. So looking back at your work, what do you do most often with regard to choosing the next question? I think it's a combination of what arises from what I had done and what remains to be done, and all kinds of external influences. So I often joke that now it's going to say on my tombstone, here lies the gender lady, because of my book, You Just Didn't Understand, that got so much attention. Um, that was not my choice. I did not specialize in gender. That wasn't my focus. In fact, when I first came to Georgetown, I was one woman among 18 faculty members, and a colleague of mine asked, did I want to teach a course on gender and language? Not only did I say no because it wasn't my field, I was offended. Just because I'm female doesn't mean that I'm an expert in gender and language. How did I come to do that? Uh, when I wrote my first book for non-academic audiences, it was called That's Not What I Meant. That was the book for which I had outsized ambition. I thought I'm going to change the world. People are going to see that linguistics is playing a role. It's not just psychology. And so that really is like an introduction to sociolinguistic processes that actually very much it was based on a course I was teaching here at Georgetown, cross-cultural communication, which I still teach. And many of the examples there were for my students. Um, so that book had one chapter on gender. That was what everybody wanted to talk about. It was my agent who suggested I do the next book on gender. And I walked into a meeting with her thinking, she's not going to talk me into that. I don't want to do that. <laughs> and she somehow convinced me that I could do it in a way that was intellectually interesting to me and I would not have to compromise or pander in any way. So I think these things are a combination of what interests you personally and outside influences as well. I decided to organize a panel at the uh, conference on gender because that's what I was doing at that time. And several of the people that I invited to that at the time said, well, I'm not really doing gender, but I guess I could. And then they ended up going in that direction too. So I think there can be a zeitgeist like that, that we influence each other. You mentioned something else just a moment ago that I find interesting. Most academics live dual lives of instruction and teaching and mentorship of students and, and their own research. And it sounds like you've you've tried to blend those together. Say, say a bit more about how you deliberately try to put those together. Absolutely. Um, I cannot imagine having written the books I wrote if I hadn't been teaching courses in similar topics. So everything I've done it, you can trace to the courses I teach but of course the courses I teach are shaped by the research I'm doing it's inextricable um, we're very lucky here at Georgetown that we have these fabulous undergrads and we also have a, a very large PhD program in linguistics so for each of the books I've written I've taught graduate seminars on the topic so those students are helping me do the literature review and getting to know all the other work in the field and 
and they're doing very detailed analysis from that perspective. Um, and then I also teach undergrad. So as I said, it was uh, my courses on uh, the discourse of social media that really got me interested in that aspect, which, I'm, which I've written about more recently. So thinking of a young PhD student that you mentor or a young faculty member, what is the common misperception that we have when we're young that you'd like to have them get rid of as soon as possible? Thinking of grad students, you do not have to do everything in your dissertation. Do one bit of it and then do the rest later. And I often tell them when I was writing my dissertation and I uh, was writing about this analysis of this Thanksgiving dinner conversation. Um, I had a number of phenomena that were interesting to me that I was looking at, and one was repetition. So I had a lot to say about repetition. But I went around and asked people how long does a dissertation have to be, and I came to the conclusion that 250 pages was about right. And so I realized that I had my 250 pages and I hadn't done repetition. So I just stopped and I did that later. Uh, now it's more often referred to as intertextuality, but it's really the same thing. Um, and uh, so that's, that's the advice that I give grad students. They have all these ideas and they want to get everything in to that first study, and that makes it unmanageable. Let's end with a, a question on what you're excited about doing right now. What's the question that you find yourself thinking walking around campus? Uh, it is without doubt the uh, issue of social media. Of course, you're walking around campus, you're thinking about it because so many people have their heads in their screens. And it has always been fundamental to my approach to be protective of the underdog and the criticized. So I'll back up, back up a tiny bit and say a lot of sociolinguistics has roots in the 60s both in the turn to analyzing everyday interaction, which I think was a zeitgeist at the time, um, but also um, the social justice concerns of the 60s. And so just as I was in a way protective of the New York Jewish style and other people who have what I call high involvement style, I could see in the uh, criticism by older people of how younger people use social media as something very parallel. My impulse is to be protective of those kids. We think they're being rude to us by being on their phones when they should be talking to us. They are avoiding being rude to their friends. How rude to make somebody wait two hours for an answer to a short question that you could answer in just a couple minutes on your phone. So it's these different senses of what's polite and what's rude. As an older person, I'm in many ways in sympathy with this criticism. They're losing out. They're losing out on all the face-to-face -face interactions that we had. They're losing out on the um, being in immediate touch with their environment. It is a kind of connection. And they're going to put the phones away later, and they're going to see where they are. So I try to evaluate both what are the effects of these social media um, and to be a little more thoughtful about what are we gaining and what are we losing. Deborah Tannen, thank you. Uh, it's been wonderful talking to you and thank you for joining us on our podcast series, Faculty and Research. It's been great talking to you, thank you.